got a call from the triage nurse at Surrey Memorial Hospital. And she asked me to come to the emergency room at the hospital. And she didn't, she just was very quick phone call. She said, Lori, I need you to come over here. And pretty quick, I think. And click. That was about the nature of that phone conversation. So I drove out to Surrey Memorial Hospital. And I met her at the desk. She was a friend of mine at the time. And so she was the call. And so I knew this, this nurse. And she said, okay, come on in here with me. And, and again, as you can imagine in hearing the story today, being in the emergency room of a hospital is never a great experience. Um, it's fraught with tension. It's fraught with emotion. It's fraught with fear and terror. And she took me in, and it was a busy place. Surrey Memorial Hospital is a busy emergency room. And she took me into the big, large, open area where all the beds are. And over in the corner, in the very corner, in the corner unit, there was a, a curtained-off area. And she led me <laughs> in that direction towards the corner. And my heart, my heart is just pounding because I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. She didn't take time to tell me what was going on. She just said, come with me, and off we went. And pulled back the curtain to approach the bed, and I prepared to face what was behind that curtain. And I found a young woman there in the bed in the corner, in about her mid-20s, and she was curled up very tight in a very tight fetal position on the bed, just, just very tight. And her, her head was pretty much predominantly swathed in bandages. Now, you might immediately say back to me and say, oh, yes, this is exactly what I would expect to be representing the face of, the, of violence against women, things that involve physical violence, uh, a woman requiring medical care, newspaper articles, police charges, the criminal aspect of victim services response, files in the police. But you know, I have found that it isn't always physical violence. Sometimes we do lo look after women who have been injured, physically injured, sometimes quite seriously. But often the damage, I have found that the damage done inside to a woman's soul and to her spirit and to her very life inside by verbal or emotional or psychological abuse is even more horrific than the sight that I beheld in that emergency room in the hospital that day. And when that gal, I, she, there's one swollen eye amongst all the bandages, and when she opened that eye and she saw me out of the corner of that one swollen eye that was visible, she reached out her arm and she just grabbed me and she hung on to me as if I was a life preserver in a storm. You see, the truth was that I knew immediately when I saw that, even though she was completely disfigured, that I knew this gal. I knew this gal because she had just left our emergency transition house 10 days earlier. She had just spent an entire month with us. She had come to us from what had happened in her life earlier. She had become part of our family at the transition house. And we grieved with her about what had happened in her relationship. We had supported her and we'd helped her. And we'd helped her to actually find a new place and relocated her 
we'd helped her to find a new job in a different community, and I still had had that image in my head of her walking out the door of the transition house with hope in her eyes and determination in her steps. And that had been 10 days before she's holding on to me in the emergency room in the hospital. And you might think, well, is sh was she a typical abuse victim? Was she? Is there something like, if it was a typical abuse victim, is there something that you could categorize as being someone who's a typical abuser or an abusive person? You might think so. And the truth is that the, the statistics are actually staggering. And this is one of the things that just way back that 20 years ago when I said yes to God, I had no idea. Grew up in the church, loved God, served God all my life. I had no idea the extent of the scourge of domestic violence in our world and in our churches. I had no idea. But the staggering statistics, 50% of all Canadian women, you can see it on the screen, have experienced at least one incident of physical or sexual violence since age 16. Um, at one of the little meetings I was at yesterday at Mission Sest, one of the guys sitting in the room and who has a ministry in, in Mexico, he said, the area that we're working in is so violent that 98% of girls by the time they're 18 years old have been raped at least once. Can you, can you see that? Can you imagine that? Can you envision a community that has that rate of violence against women? One in four women will experience abuse at the hands of the person that they love, of the partner in their life. One in four. And sometimes the statistics nudge towards one in three and get pretty close. And isn't that a totally awful figure? for women, that there isn't necessarily safety for them. Every year in Canada, over 40,000 arrests result from domestic violence. As Wes alluded with victim, you know, the files, 12% um, of all violent crimes are connected to domestic violence. And it's, tr it's really believed that there's only about 22% of all domestic violence incidences that actually do get reported to the police. So it is, a, it is a crazy thing. And if you talk to any police officer, and I don't know if there's any police officers in, in the congregation today, they often will tell me, I'd rather almost go to any other call but a domestic violence call because they're so difficult, they're so complicated. And then the sad fact that on any given day in Canada, more than 3,300 women, along with their 3,000 children, are forced to sleep in a shelter. They have to leave their homes in order to be safe. And every night, probably at least 200 women are turned away because the shelters are predominantly full. We shouldn't have to live in a country that has those kind of statistics. We shouldn't have to live in a country that women are facing this issue. But in reality, we live in a world that's predominantly unsafe for women. And that's that phrase I have there that talks about public space is male space actually is a common phrase in Mexico. What do you have to do to be safe? And it's hard, I think, you know, I, I've chatted with my husband about this, and it's hard to understand for men to understand this. And the best illustration I can use to help you with this is 
a fellow by the name of Jackson Katz. He goes around and he does education with sports teams in the States. And he gave an illustration one day that I just thought, wow, that's really helpful. He goes into university classes and he talks to university kids and he puts whiteboards or flip charts at the front of the room. And then he's going to say to the guys in the room, tell me what you've done in the last 24 to 40 out 48 hours to ensure that you're safe, that you're going to be safe. And what do you think happens in answer to that question with, with the guys in the class? It's, it's pretty quiet. Like, guys, you're not wired to be thinking about your own personal safety. It's not an issue for you because you predominantly feel safe. You're not thinking always at the back of your mind about that. So oftentimes, that white chart for those guys in the university class, there's nothing coming from them because they don't, it's not their world. And then he turns to the gals in the class and he says, okay, gals, in the last 24 to 48 hours, what have you done or what have you thought about or what have you planned or what have you focused on in order to keep yourself safe and to make sure you're safe? And what do you think happens then? They fill flip chart after flip chart after flip chart, maybe four or five different flip charts of various things like, you know, holding my keys in my hand here, not going there, knowing I can't go there, knowing I can't walk at like a night here, knowing that this isn't safe, knowing this, and, and they just go boom, 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 boom. And it becomes pretty clear then, and it's actually fairly revolutionary realization for all the great guys in that university class. Oh my goodness, I had no idea that the gals I hang around with and I care about and I'm friends with, that the reality of their life is they do not live in a world that is safe for them. And most guys don't understand and know that. And I'd just say to you, if you have teenage daughters or children or daughters or even loved ones, do you know how safe they feel their world is? Uh, the truth to the statement that actually women, in some reality, organize their entire lives around the threat of men's violence. And more than one in ten Canadian women say that they've been stalked by someone in a way that caused them to fear for their life. So that's always, too, the part of domestic abuse is just the reality that the world is not safe for women. This gal in the hospital bed, back to the emergency room, she wasn't a loser. She came from a very good family. She was financially secure. She was not in poverty. She had a university degree. She had a stable career path. She was Caucasian. You know, in reality, there aren't any circumstances at all to protect a woman from being vulnerable to domestic violence. Economic status, academic achievement, childhood stability, religious affiliation, cultural background, none of those things protected this gal. She could have been my daughter. She could have been your daughter. She could have been your sister. She could have been your friend. She was someone's daughter. She was someone's sister. She was someone's friend. She was someone's co-worker, and she was loved. And that didn't help her from being in that hospital bed that day because she was as vulnerable as any woman in this room. Experiencing abuse at the hands of someone that she had most loved and trusted. And so in reality, the answer to that earlier question is, 
that there is no typical abuse person. There is no typical abuse victim. There is no typical abuser. And that physical violence is only one type of abuse in our society today. It's amazing how many women have looked at me and said, oh, I just wish he'd just hit me instead of all of that other thing. And so even women who are in abusive relationships often acknowledge that they know that the, actually the physical violence is not what harms and damages them the most. And the phrase is that bruises fade and broken bones heal, but internal spirit and soul damage can debilitate a woman for a very, very long time. And even more horrifying than all of that is just the understanding and realization that statistics tell us that the stats are the same in the faith community as they are in secular society. So all of those things we've just talked about actually apply to every church, to every faith community. It is no different. And that was probably one of the most stunning things to me as a believer of Jesus Christ, to say, isn't the church to be a different situation? Isn't the church to be a different model? Isn't the church to take a different road with this? And realizing that we could be and are saved by grace, and yet we carry a sinful nature that we are constantly needing to be transformed from and by in this world that we live. You know, I, the doctor came into the room, I'm going back to the emergency room in my story. He came into the room and I'm just holding this gal and she's trying to tell me what happened. And the doctor came in the room and he said, the reason I asked you to come is she wanted you to come and here's our situation. Our tests show that there's a good possibility that this gal uh, could lose her eyesight. And as well, she might possibly lose one of her eyes as a result of, the, of what had happened to her. And um, he, wanted, he wanted me to know that it was pretty serious. And they were still doing a few tests and she had needed somebody, and her family actually lived in another province in Canada, so she didn't actually have, the family that loved her wasn't able to actually be by her bedside that day. And so you're gonna say to me, well, what happened, what happened to that gal that day? And why, and why, did, what, you know, what kind of tore her hopes and her dreams apart and left her seriously injured in that bed? And somehow what happened is her partner, who was actually, the successful CEO of a fairly significant company in downtown Vancouver. Again, not your typical, you might think typical abuser, you know, can't hold down a job, looks ugly, dresses, you know, just differently. But a lot of abusers are very successful, they're well put together, they're gregarious, they're charming, they're, you know, really great people and successful in what they do. Her partner, had tracked her down to her new life in a new place, in a new job, probably somewhat through his power and influence and his ability to access information. And he had gained entry to her new place. And when she came home from work that day from her new job and entered her place, he was waiting for her there with a weapon. And you can ask yourself the question, well, why? Why on earth would he do that? What, what was he possibly thinking? 
Like, why would he take all the time and effort to track her down and, and, and have this incident happen? Domestic violence, the United Nations defines domestic violence as any act of gender-based behavior that results in or is likely to result in physical, sexual, or mental harm and suffering, including threats of such acts, coercion, or arbitrary deprivation of liberty, whether it occurs in public or whether it occurs in private life. So when you unpack that definition, it's kind of like a really professional definition. But when you unpack that definition, there's a lot of stuff that's covered in that definition, a whole ton of stuff. And you think, well, okay, why was, what was he thinking? Why would he have done that? And some of you, I'm sure, have ideas about what you think domestic violence is. I certainly did. And at the beginning, I had always thought the domestic violence was kind of like extreme marital conflict. It's like two people who are just really struggling with things like communication and figuring out how to control their anger and just selfish and just the ability to act like jerks and they don't know how to re resolve conflict. But in reality, um, I think that I would probably be the first to say and I probably am pr fairly sure that most of the rest of you would say that there have been times in your relationships, you know I've been married over 30 years, my relationship, that I haven't been the best person that I've wanted to be. I haven't behaved as the person I wanted to be. And yet, I have never feared a sense of fear with my husband, nor he with me. And even though we've squabbled and there's been those times, and so that's what, so domestic violence is not an immature relationship that has characteristics of those things in it. It's not... Um, that it's a different animal and I always say it's the kind of the difference between a horse and a zebra look the same from maybe the outside except for those black and white stripes but the nature of the animal is opposite to each other domestic violence instead is characterized by somebody needing to have power and control in that relationship needing to be in charge of that relationship needing to be the center of that relationship um, needing to think that I am entitled to things that this person here is not entitled to, that I have exclusive privileges that are not extended to this person, and this person's role in our relationship is to serve me and look after me and do whatever it is that I think is best, and it's a very different animal, and then to do whatever it takes to maintain that. And if that abuser is a, is a man... Oftentimes, there's also a harmful view of women involved in that picture, what their purpose is and their role in life. And, you know, one of the things that was really great when we got into this, because my husband is the most supportive guy I know, supports me 100%. We kind of did this education thing, and one of the things we spent time doing is actually looking within and saying, hey, are we potentially, and have we become, and are we abusive with each other, and we kind of hold on to some of these harmful beliefs. And has it really impacted and influenced our marriage, our relationship? And taking the time to look inside ourselves and think, let's examine our own beliefs. Let's examine how, what we think. And let's examine how we actually use the power we have with each other. And rather than having a power over model where there is that control, it's more a power 
power with and a power for, that it's working together rather than that. This young woman's partner obviously was entrenched in those beliefs that he needed to be in control, that he needed to have power over this gal, and that he needed to be the center of that relationship. And you know what? It wasn't up to her to say that relationship was over. It wasn't her job, it wasn't her place. She didn't have the right to end that relationship. Nor did she have the right to leave him. Nor did she have the right to go on and experience life. Nor, if I can't have you, then nobody else is going to have you either. And so that's kind of then where some of those beliefs led this particular fellow. And so he needed to do whatever he needed to do in order to maintain his world the way that he felt it should be. And somehow, um, in the living room of her new place, he attacked her in the horror of that moment when he attacked her with a weapon. Somehow, she was, because he surprised her. Obviously, you're not going into your home and expecting somebody to be hiding in your home with a weapon. She eluded his grasp. Somehow, she managed to elude his grasp and she ran out onto the sidewalk in front of her new place. Just as a transit bus is going by. This is a God miracle thing. Because what happened is that transit bus driver saw her kind of come out bleeding and broken and falling onto the sidewalk. And he stopped the bus. And he opened the door and he went and grabbed her and pulled her onto the bus, jumped back in the seat, closed the doors and kept going just as the partner's coming out the door after her. Can you imagine that? And he took her straight to the hospital. Forget the transit route that day. <laughs> Wasn't going to follow the transit route. And I don't think anybody on the bus there would have minded. And he wasn't actually that far from Surrey Memorial Hospital. Took her, straight to, took her straight to emergency. I truly believe that that gal probably would not be alive today if that hadn't happened for her. If somebody didn't come along who knew what he could do and responded accordingly, God provided a miracle in a marvelous way in that young woman's life. And as I'm sitting there and she's trying to tell me this, and then the doctor says, so the re one of the reasons you're here is that the only chance we might have to save this gal's eye and to save this gal's eyesight is she needs to be in a dark room for three to five days and she needs to be prone. And somebody needs to just look after her and just make sure that she doesn't have stress, that she's quiet, that she can sleep, and, and you know, a whole prescription of all the things that are gonna be helpful to perhaps intervene in saving her eyes. Well, we could do that. We could do that. We were prepared, we knew what to do. I could take that gal, I could transport that gal or arrange for the ambulance actually to bring her back to the transition house and give her a safe place and participate in the quest to save her eyesight. And as a servant of Jesus Christ, isn't that our response? Aren't those the things that we need to do? And why is that? Because every person, every woman, every child that comes our way is deeply loved by God. 
significant because Jesus Christ gave his life for them. And as a servant following him, it, we must respond to the heart of God. Take a stand and take action on the things that matter to God. Protecting the vulnerable, protecting the victims. For me, um, I just wanted to do everything I could to make sure that I was supportive and helpful to this gal. And it's got to be like that with every single person who needs that. And I think when I talk about the fact that I've seen God work in so many incredibly marvelous and wonderful and immense ways, it's partially because of the fact that I've seen his heart. I've seen him do miracles in front of me in the lives of women and children. I've seen a sense of his care and compassion for the orphans and for the the downtrodden and for the disenfranchised and for all of those. Would you have known what to do? Would you have known how to respond? You know, every time there's a newspaper article regarding the murder of a woman or a newspaper article regarding um, serious physical injuries about a woman at the hands of her intimate partner, they always go out to the neighborhood, right, and they always see if they can talk to a few of the neighbors around that house, and they say, you know, what do you know and what do you think, and what's the most prevailing comments that you might see on the newspaper or here in the, in the, on the radio or on the TV about that? People usually say things like, we're shocked. We never thought something like this would happen. He seemed like such a great guy. We had no idea that this was going on. I don't know what I could have done. And I wonder what you would say if it happened in your neighborhood, if it happened to your next-door neighbor or someone down the street, or if it happened to one of your coworkers. Have you put out any kind of an antenna to just sense, okay, maybe something's not quite the way it should be? Have you thought that there's something a little off here? Do you know what you would do if someone confided in you that about what was really going on in their home behind closed doors. Do you know what you would do? Do you know what you would say? And as a faith community, we need to know what to do because the church needs to be that safe place. The church needs to be a safe place for abused women. The church needs to be a healing place for abusive men. We need to know that. It, and I'd say to you, is, do you think your church is a safe place? for women to come forward, to come to, for women in your church to bring women who they know are experiences to the, to the sanctuary that's here. You know, the recent Me Too movement, and you all know what that is, and just all of a sudden this huge spotlight that's going on is upending institutions and shining a spotlight on the shadow of sexual harassment and sexual assault and violence against women. And we've all heard the call through even the secular community at this point in time about the no more and time's up. And you've heard all of that and you've seen all of that in the news. And it should be the church, in my estimation, that's leading in support of this, leading in support of protecting the victims and protecting them. And also examining, is it you? Do you fear that someday somebody's going to say, I'm going to register my complaint against you? Do you fear that? Do you fear your name being called? 
you've been clinging to, to needs and beliefs that have been harmful or damaging in your relationships. Are you a safe person? It's the godly women here at your church who are called to acknowledge the prevalence and severity of abuse, even within your doors, and respond to those and aid those healing. And what's that, what could that look like even beyond your doors? It could place you at the foot of a bed like the young woman in the hospital. It could place you as part of that caring supportive fabric essential to getting her through this next dark period in her life. It could give you eyes to see men and women in your church, connected to your church, in your neighborhood, in your extended families, in your friend circles, in your workplace who are struggling with this issue. It could place you in the forefront of the movement to declare that women, violence against women and children is unacceptable in our society today. It begins with educating our children and our teens and the epidemic, I'm just going to veer off for a second, the epidemic of actual um, abusive dating violence and dating behavior in youth groups in our churches is, has reached an epidemic proportion as well. Get calls all the time from youth pastors and pastors to say, this is what's happening in our youth group and we need some support and help to know how to do this. And just being a church that makes sure that as you grow your children and your teens up, they understand and know what is healthy relationships look like and what should characterize them and what is unacceptable behavior in a dating relationship. Several years ago, there was a domestic violence review panel established in Washington State to annually review the homicides that had occurred that year. And in that report, what they did is they listed the names of every woman that had died at the hands of her partner, and it was listed along with the date of her death. And one of the moms of one of these precious women phoned into the review panel to let them know that they'd listed the wrong date of her daughter's death because her daughter had actually been murdered a day before the date that was listed in the report. And the mother's comment was, oh, if I had had only one more day, if I'd had that one more day, Maybe I could have done something, and my daughter would still be alive today. We've had women killed here in BC. If you've read the news, you know that a whole family in Kelowna was wiped out before Christmas. Dad killed mom and three kids. You know about the children that were killed in Victoria by their dad while they were spending Christmas with him, and he did not return them to their mom. This is really serious stuff. We don't have time. We don't necessarily have one more day for those who've been killed, but we do have more days, and we do have today to help and support anyone we know who's been harmed by domestic violence and our families and our friends. And the question is, what can you do today? What will you today? As you look around your world, what is God telling you? What is he saying to you about what he's asking you to step up and do? And if that young woman, we took that young woman home with us, and we did exactly what the doctor said. And if that young woman was here with me today, she would look, she'd stand beside me and she'd look at you out of two fully seeing brown eyes. And she would say, 
take a stand. We need you to bind the wounds of the brokenhearted and to break the scourge of violence and to hold forth the promise in Isaiah, Isaiah 54, 14, which reads, In righteousness you will be established. Oppression will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. And I just then exhort you as servants of Jesus Christ in the community of faith to take a stand and do your part, what God might ask of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lori. That was um, really important, and I, I, I um, felt very moved by that. And um, as a response, we're going to sing a song um, that's some of you might be really familiar with, and others of you might not be. But um, the bridge of the song is just the cry of our, of kind of the heart of that sermon, which is or of that or point, which was, um, it's just that God would break our heart for what breaks his and that we would be moved um, to live as he requires us to. So if you want to stand and sing, if you feel um, you know the words, join along. If not, just let us sing over you and um, pray this with us. Mm -hmm. 